This is Death by DVD. I am your host, Alexander Nash. And with me, as always, is my co-host and backwood buddy. It's Hank. Do you know my actual last name is Springsteen? Okay, where did you get this? How, how, what? It's a true fact. It's my last name. It's Hank Springsteen. Relation? He's my cousin. That's it? That he's just your cousin? Oh, we don't get along very well, but we're related. I thought that would be an astounding fact for the show. You know, it's, it's Bruce Springsteen's cousin. Well, here's the thing. I don't believe you. I could get him on the phone right now. Call him. Call the boss right now. I was a chauffeur driver. Ah. Now it's becoming two <laughs> movies. It's just getting all over the place. <laughs> I did watch that movie recently, and it was incredibly mediocre. It was a movie. <laughs> it was it was all right, whatever. It was a movie. Yeah, that's Come to Daddy. And um, Elijah Wood's haircut was the three out of the, the three stars. Was I supposed to hate him as much as I hated him? I think so. I, I hated him. I feel it was the whole point and purpose of the movies that you really weren't supposed to like Elijah Wood at all, and it it paid off. Yeah, well, I, I guess we could go with the recently seen Come to Daddy. We've both recently seen it. Um, and we both, yeah. I guess, felt it was mediocre. I It had a massive lack of Stephen McCaddy. I liked the movie and told you to see it, but it was one of those things of, like, I saw it, I just I want somebody else to see it so I can just talk about how mediocre it is. It's a three out of five. It's it's not poor. I didn't. It was like uh, it was well shot. Um, it was a little overly lit for what the story was. I think it was a little. I I get that people it really are felt fascinated like a, with the. Um, I know the what you kind did of, last summer movie. You know, it really felt like a late nineties like teen slasher sort of thing with its lighting. It didn't feel real to me. Well, I mean, it's it's in the same vein as a lot of modern horror films of just being. Using a lot of colored lights, a lot of neon, and trying to make it look kind of trying to appropriate kind of an 80s style and just being incredibly overlit in this case because the story didn't really require because the story is not much. Because once you find it, like the final reveal of what's going on about what, say, 50 minutes in, it's just like, oh, so this is just like a early 90s Tarantino ripoff film. Okay, why is it shot like a fucking hardcore horror film or like, you know, I don't know. I just thought it was decent overall. It was an okay movie. I just, it's getting a lot of press of being like, oh, you got to see uh, Come Today. It's really good. I'm like, eh, it's, it's all right. I will say this though the hype for Relic was true hype. That movie is fucking excellent. Probably one of the best movies of the year, if not the best movie of the year since 2020 is completely fucked up as far as movie releases goes. I'm pretty comfortable in saying it's probably going to be the best movie of the year. And I watched um, She Dies Tomorrow, which is another incredibly overhyped movie. And that's another three out of five in itself. It's okay, but it's ultimately meaningless and just deals with like human emotion and how you would deal with the fact of you might, you have the feeling you're going to die tomorrow. But it, like story-wise, it's completely bereft of any sort of story whatsoever yeah i watched the 1992 SummerSlam and eating raul so i don't really have anything to talk about when it comes to my <laughs> week well eating raul is a good movie yeah no it's great i i eventually just want to hold do a do a whole thing on that but uh yeah it's great it's fantastic Jeez, yeah, come to daddy. I think the the thing that left me most sour after finishing was my just what response are you supposed to have to any of the characters? No one even particularly had value, and Stephen McCaddy, who generally is uh, pretty pleasing to to watch in anything, he even seemed lackluster. He didn't even seem like he enjoyed this. It just seemed like you were supposed to hate everyone, and as we talked about last week with the the rise and fall, of the American slasher film. That's not really the best direction to take anything in. I mean, I don't know. Who am I? What What do I know? I'm just a fucking critic. But 
I was happy to uh, see Martin Donovan pop up again in a movie. I like Martin Donovan a lot. The whole cast, everyone mixed together. When I even read the first review of it and I found it and figured, okay, I'm going to sit down and watch this. I, I just, everyone involved, I figured it was going to be a knocked out of the park, a perfect performance from everyone. And Elijah Wood really is what sunk me. Like, man, everyone ends this and look at his fucking haircut. He looks like a dweeb. I'm going to enjoy this. And even as you know, you pointed out at the, the beginning of this, are you supposed to hate him that much? Because it's an unnatural amount of hate. And it's not just because of like, man, I don't like hipsters. He's just a dildo. It's just the, the gold iPhone, the haircut, the everything. Reginald, Reginald. Like, I'm legitimately <laughs> Bruce Springsteen's cousin, and I lost everything in a race in Arizona. And it was awful. I, I didn't even get the car from Bruce. It was bullshit. And we don't speak over a woman, and it's all true facts, but still fucking reginald it's bullshit i i found that also it it lack okay it's a fairly comedic and um trying to be a fairly humorous film and somewhat quote-unquote hardcore at times like hardcore violence but towards the end it, it tried to pretend like it had like a, a heartfelt message i'm like this is not the movie for this what this like father and son bonding thing is not where this movie was going to begin with. Why are you trying to force this right at the end? So I don't know. Again, three out of five, not terrible. It's just better than average. Well, on my solo ventures, I have brought this up many times before, but I feel there is an art to double features. And tonight's episode is one of our famous double feature episodes. And in, in that sense, movies can be similar or have similar themes, art design. There's a bunch of different shit that you can combine uh, to make a perfect double feature. But a drive-in double feature, I think, is completely different, and I think there are regulations, and, and there's a criteria to like a drive-in double feature, some of which is rednecks, and it needs to be cheap. It helps to have Clue Gulliger. You need boobs or two. One or two boobs would be great. Billy Drago in any sense is great. Beheadings, I think I said beheadings, but beheadings... Hal Halbrook. It doesn't always have to have Hal Halbrook, but if you include Hal Halbrook in any of your drive-in double features, it, it's going to, like, creep show. It's going to make it a hundred times better. We've done double features before, but this, I think, is, like, the ideal, uh, as I like to call it, John Borman knockoff genre double, double feature. Hicksploitation. Everything but Ned Beatty getting butt-fucked appears within these two movies, I, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, as far as like as a redneck exploitation double feature, this one fits the bill. It's My title classes the, um, it up. Like you could go exploitation, redneck exploitation, but John Borman knockoff. It it makes it sound like you're getting somewhere. And in one of these movies, I think I'm you thinking really... Zardoz though. When you say that, I'm like, oh, Zardoz <laughs> knockoff. This is gonna be totally great, man. Thongs. No, I wish. I wish there were more Zardoz knockoffs. And like both these movies are, they're good movies. I think one is particularly way better than the other one um it's a more complete package but the uh the first film we'll be talking about is a nice solid kind of exploitation i i can't say for a fact that it was a direct-to-video movie but goddamn, does it feel like a direct-to-video movie and the first one we'll be talking about is a movie called hunter's blood which i like to sum up pretty easily as if you want to watch rugged character actors get hunted and killed by other rugged character actors. This is the perfect film for you because it is nothing but a bunch of character actors. Like every role is cast with someone famous. Um, the very rugged famous. Joey Travolta, for example. Fuck Joey Travolta. He's so rugged. <laughs> I have done a horrible John Travolta impersonation for years, and you've always made fun of me and told me it, you don't sound anything like him. It's, it's awful, Hank. But what you've neglected to say after all these years is it does sound remarkably like Joey Travolta, and it's it's unfortunate that that has to be true. But he really does kind of sound like this, and it's Joey Travolta. Hunter's Blood's just weird. It's really forgotten, and I don't understand why. And it's like forgotten, forgotten. This isn't Sleepaway Camp. It's been around, and people can regularly find it forgotten. It's just not really available. I don't know. I mean, it's a you can find it on YouTube forgotten movie like it's not easily accessible through a special edition Blu-ray or a great DVD release. Now, most of the copies of this you're going to find look like shit. And maybe instead of putting out the same Fulci movie nine times in a row, Bill Lustig put this out. What are you doing? Come on. Hunter's Blood 1986. Come on. Blue Underground. And as far as like character actors go, it's full of them because you got clue Gulger, you got <clears throat> joy travolta 
You got Sam Bottoms, who's not much of a character actor, but okay, we'll throw him in there. You got Billy Drago. You got Mickey Jones. You've got uh, Bruce Glover, Crispin Glover's father. Uh, God, who else is? Oh, Charlie Cyphers from uh, all the John Carpenter movies. Uh, Lee DeBru and Brian Rasmussen are also in it. Yeah, so it's just full of classic character actors, and none of them are really popping off. You know how Billy Drago tends to like chew scenery and like really like even in a movie like um, 1986's Vamp, where he becomes a real standout performance in that film. Billy Drago's kind of regulated to the the background of this film. He doesn't just like you know eat up all the other actors. Everybody's like playing off of each other, and it's a very much an ensemble cast. He has one good kind of dance around sequence with Sam Bottoms, and then it's just kind of thrown out the door and wasted. And he's one of the few characters I don't think you actually see a death for. Uh, what makes this different, I think, from your average exploitation movie uh, is Clue Gulliger. He never really plays uh, I, I, what I would call an effeminate character. He always has to be some sort of tough guy. Not necessarily like John Wayne, but he is more of a John Wayne character in this movie. And it's weird because everyone is like, it, it's an ensemble piece, definitely, but everyone is kind of trying to climb over the other one for the more over the top performance. And your characters are always going to beat Bruce Glover, though. He will always be the most over the top. And that's what I mean. Once you're introduced to your lead characters, what you've got a sheriff's deputy, his younger brother, Clue Gulliger's character, his son, and then Joey Travolta, who works with his son at a law firm or I don't know. One's a lawyer. One's a cop. One's a doctor. One's an Indian chief, as the joke went. And then there's Joey fucking Travolta. And from the moment you're introduced to them. It's one of those things that starts grinding on you. Like, I don't want them all to die, but <laughs> maybe it would be a lot more interesting if they all started dying because you don't get any of the, the hunter's blood until I think 19 minutes of runtime is left throughout the movie. So you have to suffer through this let's just try and climb, each, uh, climb over each other performance kind of ensemble thing. So all the villains, I would say, which are all the really good, all the guys that you'll recognize from episodes of uh, Chuck Norris's old TV show, Walker, Texas Ranger. Those are all the villains who also all played villains on that show, too. It works. <laughs> what I find interesting about Clue Gulliger's performance in this movie is, and, and in a lot of movies uh, that Clue Gulliger does, he just looks like he's terminally gassy because he's just got that look on his face and, ah. Mm. Uh, that shit that he like he does sometimes in movies where he just looks uncomfortable like the entire film even before he gets shot because he does get shot in this movie and you know he's ailing for a good chunk of it he's just kind of like ah mm, gah, mm. um sam bottoms i'm not the biggest fan of sam bottoms he's pretty ineffectual and as far as a lead goes because he's basically the lead in this film he's just a little white bread for me. He's just a little too like, I don't buy him as being like the ultimate badass as he kind of becomes towards the end. Uh, and they do play it off to where he's not, you know, like fucking Rambo or anything, but at the same time, he's still like kicking some like backwoods idiots ass, which would be a little bit hard. Cause this is their terrain. And he's able to like to vanquish them fairly easily for him being like a city boy, doctor. Going back to just the beginning of Hunter's Blood, before we even talk about Sam Bottoms being a badass, when all these characters are introduced, you move into the exploitation round pretty quickly, and you introduce, like, oh, it's just your typical backwoods deliverance characters, and it sets it up in that fashion that Travolta's taking pictures of, uh, you know, kind of Cro-Mag-looking guys, and it starts The extras from Lunch Meat, the film? Yeah, and it begins a problem right off the bat, and you can tell none of these characters are sympathetic. None of them seem to matter. Then you move into the infamous Bruce Springsteen's cousin dialogue sequence, and you don't really care. Clue Gulliger can kick ass. He wears that weird tan jacket and everything throughout the 80s. I think he's worn the same. <laughs> like, it's the same jacket from Return of the Living Dead. He just loves... He looks good in tan, though. I, I can't give him, you know, anything bad about that, but nothing really happens outside of all of these characters are dicks. They're all kind of assholes one way or another. Then they go get drunk and they just become misogynistic assholes on top of it. But every opportunity they're given to redeem themselves, not even so much redeem themselves, throughout the events of, of the entire film, they could have left, like, what, four or five times? They're stopped and they're told by not just, like, police officers, but game wardens. There's some crazy rednecks that are living out here. They're working for a big meat chain and they're killing all the deer. You guys should probably leave. No, that's not good enough. So then the crazy rednecks come into their camp and they almost get into a gunfight over it. Fuck it, we're going to still go camping. Not good enough. Then they get into a gunfight with the rednecks. 
they still want to fucking stay in camp. At that point, it, it just killed them all. I can't feel any sympathy anymore for Klugelerger going, nah, we're, we're a bunch of hunters. We're going to stay here and hunt. All right, this just sounds stupid. You all sound stupid. And I get it's the entire point that the one brother purchased this land and it's where they're allowed to go hunt and it's their whole excursion. But comparing this to what we'll get into later with rituals and both of the movies kind of having an inversion of each other, you you go into this for the explicit nature. You want the exploitation more than anything else because none of the characters are redeeming. So what you're hoping for is at least really interesting rednecks. And kind of. I mean, I guess you kind of do, but they they don't seem any more the average. Characters than... aren't particularly interesting, but the actors they have hired have made those characters interesting, if that makes sense. It's like just by sheer will of their performances, does it make the, the plot interesting? Because as it's written, they're just kind of fucking rednecks i mean it's this is a, like a pretty typical you don't belong around here boy genre filmed where it's like they're told again several times of we don't like city folk around here that kind of shit and they choose to do battle with them anyway oh they don't even specifically go into like a racist or prejudiced angle outside of city boys and yankee accents you know he talks like a yankee hear him talk like a yankee i won't fuck the one that talks like a yankee so they go into these really weird homoerotic subtext with, I guess, all hillbillies after deliverance have to be rapists. And I don't know, maybe they're all prison Nazis and they don't have problems with it. Oh, my. And then you've got that one scene where they show up to the bar and there's a sign on the front door. And they, I guess, try it because there's the whole joke. What is it? 1936 because of something that's written on the door and uh it really evades anything else outside of that, uh, just trying to use, I think, almost like the the H.G. Lewis formula to something like uh, 2000 Maniacs. Like, it's just Hicks. They're in the South. It's Rednecks. We told you it's Arkansas. They talk like Hicks. These guys talk like they're all from New York. You can see the difference, and now let's pit them off against each other. And unfortunately, when you get into the gladiatorial aspect of the movie of Sam Bottoms having to save the day, it's not that it's not believable. It just... I don't know, it just kind of sucks. I mean, he stabs a dude in the throat. You've got a, a one awesome, awesome display of violence where he nails somebody in the fucking face with a shotgun. And like we said, this movie's pretty lost. You can find copies of it, but unfortunately the gore is just not that rewarding. I'm sure what was once you know there, what was initially shot, is absolutely perfect. And if it can be saved and restored and put on some nice 4K disc will look really, really amazing. But you got to kind of take the spirit of what you're seeing, which makes watching Hunter's Blood hard because a lot of it is in spirit. You can see that there was an effect scene. You can see that there is violence, but you really can't see it because who knows what generation rip of a VHS is on YouTube right now. And it's not, I mean, it's all over streaming networks. I don't, it's not, I don't, I don't, I can't speak certainly and say it's a public domain film at this point, but it's widely available. You can find it streaming on all sorts of those free Roku download TV now websites and shit. And I'd say the disappointing thing for me on this one is it does have some brutality because like the the shotgun to the face scene, which is uh, a scene of not explicit violence. It's more aftermath violence of seeing the corpse yeah. with like a no face, like a midsummer no face fucking corpse. <laughs> um, you know, honestly, the, graphic, uh, the, but the redneck family member that finds him and then screams and is so upset is some of the most genuine acting in the entire movie with all of the Bruce Glover. Yeah. It's that, that scene is just one of the most powerful scenes. That's so all of that ties in together for a, a lot of thrill. And then you go right into the Billy Drago scene. I'd been talking about a, a little while ago that just sucks. He slams his hands in some cars. It's Billy Drago. Do something with him. That's the I think the aspect it's missing more than anything is a certain level of brutality that are really needed because it does have little smidgens of it here and there, but it really needed to take it over the top to be uh, more effective. And to compare it to the movie we'll be talking about after this, that film is not particularly graphic, although it's more graphic in a sense just on pain more than anything because it's a much more painful movie it's not so much as far as blood and gore goes but just on imagined pain of the situation and this is if it's going to be the film that it is it needs to be a little bit more exploitive on the violence angle especially since you have i mean like the ultimate um ending of the film when they shoot the last hunter that's chasing them he's holding on to a train and they shoot him and he falls and then he bleeds into the uh, the river, which is an artfully done shot. But 
you really want them to like get their comeuppance in one way, shape, or form or another. And it's just it never really feels like they get enough comeuppance. They just get killed. And you really want to see them like get dismantled at a certain point. And that I'd say that's the one drawback on it. It's just not violent enough. It needs a little bit more violence. Especially as a headliner, you know, as a supposed double feature, if you were going to see this first, it, it needs more of a hook. It needed even something like nudity just to, th- I mean, there'd be really no place for it outside of the, the bartender and there's that shower scene. I mean, the movie actually begins almost with a, a full frontal cock shot and quickly goes into a, a steamy shower scene. So I guess that's your little bit of sensuality. But any anything more graphic, I mean, some of the redneck kills, there's a stab to the throat, and at first it's kind of fun, but, I mean, you could have done some arterial blood spray, something to squirt, something to just make it a little bit greasy. But when it comes to trying to formulate and, and, and combine two movies for a double feature, what I thought made Hunter's Blood really unique with what the next movie is is that they really almost work as inversions to one another. They have the same amount of characters, many of the characters doing the same things in each movie. You have two sets of brothers, uh, you don't have the father and son aspect, which doesn't really pay off. Like, uh, Sam Bottoms is is Clue Gulliger's son, but they they don't really exchange any novelties. I mean, I, I think it's toward the end of the movie, he says, like, I love you, Dad, and it kind of hits you, like, oh, they're father and son. I thought well, they well, were see, just... Well, see, I think that was a missing thing that like, they, they could have really paid off on, and they didn't, is... The, their uh, Clue Gulliger and Sam Bottoms relationship needed to be strained a little bit more. Maybe like Sam Bottoms is trying to earn his father's respect, and it just never felt like that. It just felt like they're okay with each other, and then at the end, they're still okay with each other. It's not like Sam Bottoms is fighting for anything other than just survival. It's not like him and his father have had any sort of contentious anything going on. So I found that to be a little bit strange. That would really would have helped the uh, ending pay off a lot better, but it's just not there. Leaving Clue Gulliger alive, I too feel, is a bit of a strange move. Again, like you don't have any emotional response. Almost everyone lives, but only only one of your characters, I think, one of your heroes, I guess you could call them, is taken out. And then you've got the redneck slaughter, and that's about it. Everyone, I mean, you've got kind of the the wink and nod, ha ha, ending that they might not be traveling to a safe place, but still, everyone pretty much survives yeah and uh again for comparisons you do have a decapitation in both films not on camera though it's all aftermath violence in both films um so that could that's another thing you could have had a little bit of uh, a little bit of that violence added to this film um it's not necessary for your uh, for the film after this though i like i think that works better in that film one of the weird things if you tra- when you travel and you watch it in this fashion if you were to watch hunter's blood first and then you move into the next movie it, you would think that you would desire a, a lot more of a graphic nature but i think the thoughtful nature of, of where we're going into is what kind of saves it and it's not so much thoughtful as the characters or what they're doing but what's presented to you on screen and how the story unfolds and, and the little devices that are used to really toy with you is what is, is really thoughtful. And that's something that I think lacks with Hunter's blood. And so there's nothing wrong with exploitation for the sake of exploitation, but sometimes it does need a thoughtful refinement to it. I mean, even something like a Roger Corman movie in the mid eighties had some thoughtful nature to it. You know, there is something to humanoids from the deep. Maybe. Yeah, I mean, there, there's a little bit of something to it, but this is just kind of, it's a general run through of, we put people in woods, other people in woods want to kill these people, now they're going to try to get out. And that's pretty much all that it is. Uh, the characters don't particularly grow, they don't get closer, they don't get further apart. Uh, everybody hates Joey Travolta at the beginning. Everybody still hates Joey Travolta at the end. He didn't uh, doesn't redeem himself in any way, nor does he get killed to redeem himself in our eyes either. That's what's just so, baffling um, about this, though, is no one really dies. That there, I don't know if it was a contractual thing that everyone just had to do the movie together, but it, it just nothing seems to happen. And then it's really maybe the twenty three to nineteen minute mark that you get the Sam Bottoms goes Rambo scene. And it doesn't last. I mean, when you go finally to the uh, battle with Billy Drago, he's crying. The character has really no backbone. It just seems like he's surviving just to get out of the situation. Like you said, there's nothing between him and his father. Not that it was necessary, but I mean, at least something at the end of the movie to show that it mattered. Like, life and death in general mattered to any of these people. Because otherwise, they're just a bunch of rich guys that go back to being rich guys and killed a bunch of rednecks. And actually, I have just thought of an actual triple feature you could do with these films. Um, you could start with Hunter's Blood, 
and then you could have rituals right in the middle. And then the last feature you could do it would be uh, Zero Boys. Have you ever seen Zero Boys? Yeah, that does fit. Yeah, Zero Boys would be like a great like action lambasting finale for this this tri- like drive-in triple feature. Such an exciting. Uh, did you want to talk paintball. about the fucking end credits theme song that you love so much that it's I just best. don't get? Oh man, it's just rootin' and tootin'. It it sounds like it's a weird mix of new it wave. It sounds music, like the opening credits for Walker Texas Ranger, but with a weird funky new wave beat. I don't know. There's just something back when in the '80s when every movie got their own little song recorded for the soundtrack. Whether it had something to do with the soundtrack or not, that just makes me warm and happy inside. Yeah, find Hunter's Blood if you can. It's an experience to be had, and especially if you're in, enjoy it whatsoever. The John Borman knockoff genre, redneck exploitation, Hicks exploitation. I think it needs to be on every perfectionist list just because it has Clue Gulliger in it. And fuck yeah, Clue Gulliger, he's the man. God bless you, Clue Gulliger, you're the man. I guess it could go on your Sam's Sam Bottoms list. I don't know how many movies would be on that. This and Apocalypse Now. Yeah, what wow. else has Sam Bottoms been in that's been worth a fuck? I don't know. He's been dead for a while too, hasn't he? Uh, I don't I think all the Bottoms boys are still going. I thought Sam Bottoms died of like a brain tumor or something, something. That's possible. Brains. What about Timothy? Timothy's still alive. I think everyone else is still alive. Everyone else from the last picture show. Uh. Oh, wow, he is. 53 years old, uh, December 16th, 2008. Sam Bottoms died. Okay, Sam Bottoms is dead. You are correct. He was in Seabiscuit, the last picture show, and the outlaw Josie Whale. So, I mean... I don't know if that means anything to the audience or you. I like The Last Picture Show. I'm more of a Timothy Bottoms guy myself. Yeah, he wasn't my... Uh, there's not a lot about Lance B. Johnson. Johnny got his gun, Invaders from Mars. You know, Timothy Bottoms. I'm more of a Hal Halbrook guy. Speaking of Hal Holbrook, we're moving on to... One of my actually, I love this movie. I think this movie is. I'm pretty than sure Deliverance. I've only seen this movie because of you, and it does have. I mean, the the very first half of this movie is so uncannily similar to Deliverance. It's not even so much an homage or a knockoff, but it goes into its own places and its own gears. And I think by the end of the product, I mean. Ned Beatty doesn't get raped in it, sure, but it's still pretty good. Not that that should be the driving point to watching Deliverance. Well, again, as we were saying before, it's a much more thoughtful film, and it's a it's a character study as well as being a exploitation film. And, it's because it's fucking I mean, Canadian. Can... That's it's it's gotta be. It's a Canadian movie, so so much more thought was put into it. And this was what this is. I think it was shot like two or three years before it was released. So this is really. It was around the. I don't think it's even a Deliverance ripoff. I think they were shot like this. And Deliverance were shot at the same time. Or Rituals might even come first. Yeah, because it came out in '77 or so, and I think it was shot two to three years prior to its release. So I don't think it was even really a Canadian tax break film. I think it's right around that time when that transition began happening. But it, it, I think it just so happens to be very, very similar in its nature in the first half of the movie to Deliverance. But calling it a ripoff might be a bit too much. Well, I mean, as it got released to begin with, I think the initial release title was Rituals, and it did okay business. The but then they tried to release, re-release it as The Creeper, as almost like a slasher film in the 80s, which was a terrible fucking title for this film because Rituals has several different meanings to it. Um, into the what the plot of the film is, and it's a, actually a perfect title for what you're getting ready to witness. Which and the concept behind this is a bunch of doctors um, go on vacations that one of the guys in the group set up. They don't tell anybody else. They tell them what they need to bring, and then they surprise them of what their uh, their ritual is. Like this is our yearly vacation, and just so happens this time it's camping out in the middle of nowhere in. Uh, Fucking Ontario? I'm not sure. Somewhere in fucking Canada. Out in the middle of nowhere, Canada. Yeah, it's it's somewhere very, very vast, deep, and beautiful. They had to fly in a plane to get out to the woods. This is not like we drove out there and, you know, it's not like there are roads to get back to civilization. They, they fly and get dropped off. This is almost like the edge of, like, wilderness, like, in the middle of fucking nowhere. But it is also and, uh, similar to that movie, The Edge. I thought you were about to reference that. I was like, yeah, with Anthony Hopkins and Alec Baldwin. Yes, that's, that's what I was great... talking about, The Edge. That's <laughs> oh, okay. why I said The Edge. Yeah. Well, you said okay. The Edge, and then you started going, and I was like, is it The Edge of Civilization, or is it that movie no, with Harold Prynne Jr.? the David Mamet film, <laughs> yeah. The Edge. Yeah, that's a great movie. Okay, I'm glad we're on the same page. <laughs> hey, that could be the fourth feature, man. Well, yeah. We can just keep going with this. And then we got to do that um, one with Joey Pants and Daryl Hannah. I want to add that one in. Um. Oh, 
God, the Final Terror, which is a <laughs> different kind of movie altogether. It, it really is, but it's a fun one. Um, but anyway, Rich, like they go out there, and all these doctors um, have their different specialties, and like Hal Holbrook has his. One of them has become like a plastic surgeon, and some of the other doctors give him shit because he's doing like glory work, and it's not like not getting in the trenches. And doing real doctor work. Well, you even have the argument between Hal and one of the other doctors. Is it Mitzi? I think it's Lawrence Dane yeah, uh, who plays Lawrence Mitzi, Dane. and uh, Hal plays Harry. Where before they get on the plane, he's mad at Harry for not selling out because Harry, I wouldn't say, has more integrity or backbone. Because later on, you see as these characters all kind of change places, kind of who they really are and what they are inside. But he's very happy leading what Mitzi considers to be a mediocre life. He. Works at a hospital that I guess is looked down upon, but he he actually is legitimately working his shifts and his rounds every day, and he's enjoying the the wholesome nature of the work and being a surgeon as to where Mitzi can get him a job that he doesn't have to do anything and gives him a bunch of titles and a very nice paycheck, and everything would be easier for him. And you can see immediately with all of the with all of just the short and small development of the characters that you've kind of got the bumbling oaf, you've got more uh, a more sensitive character, the sterile kind of uh, fatherly character that, that Hal's playing and then the more cut loose jerk Mitzi's playing. Everyone immediately is is put into position. And, and the same thing happens in Hunter's Blood, but when they're all unfolded in Hunter's Blood, it's just like, oh, they're all it's, dicks. It was not the same because they don't really like get into those characters. And that's what this film is all about is these characters. And they just give us because... a display of how... Pretty much average asshole everyone is in Hunter's Blood. There's nothing, and you can even look at Mitzi's character and see, well, I don't know if I like this guy, but he's got to be coming from somewhere. These guys have known each other for 30, 40, 50 years. They they have to have reasons for the places they're coming from. As to where with Hunter's Blood, it just seems that's a bunch of people doing stuff. And, like, a lot of the contention in these relationships is how Holbrook believes that there is some not so much nobility not that he's like getting off on i'm so pious it's just no he has a responsibility as a doctor to be a doctor and not to it's not about money to him it's about helping people and mitzi is all about just make that money get the fuck out like that's the important thing is just to save yourself always and that's what informs the overall characters is mitzi's so much about save himself and how holbrook is no, we're all getting out of here together because what ultimately happens to them is they're asleep camping that one night and their shoes disappear. Someone has stolen their shoes and there shouldn't be anyone else out here because it's the middle of fucking nowhere. And then it's not like they're getting constantly fucked with by outside aggressors that you see or anything. Just shit happens to them. Random shit. So you're not even so sure that they're not just going crazy and somebody's maybe fucking with them, maybe not fucking. You don't know if they're fucking with each other. Because we don't have like an external um, antagonist that we like, like you know, meet like in Hunter's Blood, where we know who these rednecks are. We don't know what the fuck is going on, and the relationships get torn and stressed because of this. Because they're just trying to make it out, and not everyone's pulling their weight. Mitzi just wants to, like, he again just wants to save himself for the most part. He wants to kind of just, if you fucking get hurt, we're leaving you the fuck behind. You have. Um, the bumbling, uh, more overweight guy who is just getting dragged along because he can't defend himself against anything particularly. You have one of the doctors that he himself is comfortable in himself. It's not brought up, too. That's like one of the more impressive things about this film taking place in, like those made in the 70s is one of the doctors is gay. He's a gay man, and it barely gets brought up. It gets brought up like midway through the movie, and it just slightly informs his character that much more of how kind of closed off he is to the rest of the group. They all know he's gay. It's just something they don't talk about. Um, and Mitzi, of course, wants to leave him behind. Well, it's not even something that they, they don't really talk about. It's because it's just treated as commonplace. And the reference that he makes when you finally understand that he's a homosexual is just about his ex-boyfriend. And no one cringes. No one says anything silly about it because he's taken just the same as everyone else. So it normalizes homosexuality in, in an era when people would constantly say, you know, you can't have gay people around your kids, it's going to make them gay. You can't show gay people on television, it's going to make people gay. It was in an era of homophobia that, I mean, just as devastatingly as bad as it is right now, you could get away with saying, well, you can't show that on TV, they're gay, like it was some sort of blight. And the way this is handled in just a completely normalizing manner is 
pretty beautiful. It, it is a statement for the a sentiment of, I guess, the Canadians themselves. So there's some hip people, the Canadians. <laughs> and, like, the things that happen to them, I mean, again, the uh, the ex- exterior wilderness photography is quite beautiful in this movie. The locations are amazing. This isn't just some, like, base woods bullshit. This no, is, it's like, in the middle of fucking way different Canada. terrains all over the place. And when they get to the uh, crossing the river scene, it's just like a very tense scene because you don't really know what's going to happen. And ultimately what does happen is there's a fucking bear trap waiting for them to cross. And that injures one of them. Uh, And just the way that whole scene is photographed and how they ramp up the tension is really pretty amazing in the film. Um, And slowly they get picked off one by one. You have like one major scene of violence, which is the, the, the oaf, they find his decapitated head after they don't know what happened to him. He just disappears from the group at a certain point and they find his decapitated head covered in flies and bees. Uh, they also get attacked by bees at a certain point in the film. Bees. Um, and it just kind of slowly ramps up the, the tension and the violence as it goes, because there's just little bits of violence. It's just somebody that's fucking with them. It's not just somebody shooting at them or there's always imminent danger. It's just, somebody keeps fucking with them and somebody's putting them off their game at every fucking turn. So it just keeps ramping it up and ramping it up. And, uh, the different locations of the film really inform what's going on in the plot, because as they start making their way out of the woods, as they start clearing terrain, they start sort of clearing their relationships because how Holbrook and Mitzi, who are the, basically the two main leads, um, they really start, showing their true colors because how Holbrook is pushing through. He's pushing through as hard as he can. It's just like, this is what we got to do and we're going to keep doing it while uh, Mitzi just keeps falling apart and and further and further falls apart. Well, he also snaps and becomes, you know, a a little psychotic. I think he really loses touch with reality as he starts telling the story about Korea and Mitzi even comments, you know, you've told me this before, what's the point? He starts, you know, he gets the little Rambo headband and takes charge and becomes a completely different person. He really transforms himself, but it's by going a little crazy. And where we get in the movie is how Holbrook is basically by himself carrying a stretcher because Mitzi fucking ditches him and just, I'm getting the fuck out of here and just uh, fuck all of you. I'm just leaving. And he's just pulling his friend on a stretcher by himself, but like, you know, just grinding his teeth, just trying to push and push. And he ends up at a cabin and you find out what's been going on, which is basically, well, it's kind of a, like a misdirect because you find the woodsman that's been fucking with them and how Holbrook, you know, shoots him. But, well, you've been left clues the entire time. I mean, slowly throughout the movie, x-rays and notes and medical records have been left at some of the atrocities. And once you finally realize... It's somebody who hates doctors, specifically. <laughs> because you have a really interesting sequence of scenes at the, the river crossing. that One character is disabled, and they're on a stretcher floating in the water. Uh, Harry moves away and is looking forward while Mitzi just breaks down. And that's right after... They've completely been disabled, and you realize, and the characters begin realizing, this isn't natural. Something else is going on here. Somebody is doing this, and all of them have just been drinking this entire time. They had the rest of their whiskey, and as they're traversing and, and going through the waters, they've just been getting drunk and arguing with each other. And that starts building, and the, ten- the tenacity and the, ten- the tenacity of these characters, all drunk and angry with each other, all of them finally snapping all of the things they've been angry with each other over at for years and years and years coming out, all of their shortcomings all coming out, all of these guys being really great theatrical actors, adding on to that, you just start having complete anxiety attacks. But that's when you start getting things pieced together that the the killer or the, uh, I wouldn't even call it so much a killer, the disgruntled woodsman begins leaving the clues and you start slowly piecing together that this person's really fucking mad about doctors because of their treatment after coming home from World War II, specifically uh, VA doctors. And, you know, your characters are all professional doctors that are out in the woods. So, you know, you can see that there's not going to be a resolution. And the hopeless nature isn't, like, incessantly nihilistic. But with the anxiety, with the anxiety and that nihilistic nature of, well, this guy hates doctors and he's doing a pretty good job at disabling all of these doctors, you don't really have someone to root for. 
I mean, I feel when Harry starts going a little crazy and he loses his humanity and is cool with the situation, it's not that he could have worked things out better with Mitzi or things could have gone any better, but I think none of them knew what they were doing. Not that you would know. I mean, not that that's an excuse. But you know what I mean? I think all of them snap to the point that there isn't really hope that even if they all survived, they're not going to be the same people anymore. They're going to be so drastically different. There's no hope for whatever their ideas of the future were. Well, and this is where I get off on comparing this film to real life and to to a certain extent where how Holbrook's character, what pulls him through is his need to survive because that's what it's about. It's about survival. And if you go into anything like politics, anything that's going on in the world right now in 2020 with pandemics and everything else going the fuck on, it's about surviving. It's about doing what you have to do to survive. Why? Because you don't have a fucking choice. It's either that or you curl up in a ball and die. And Hal Holbrook does not crawl up in a ball and die. He fights back and he continually fights back. That doesn't mean raise a gun. That doesn't mean turn to a psychopath. That means you just keep plugging away, even though your feet are bleeding and you're, you just keep marching forward because, as Flyboy says, we got to survive. Somebody's got to survive. And that's what Hal Holbrook is doing. And then you basically find out that there are these two brothers living in the woods, one of which was just helping his younger um, deformed, if you can call him deformed at a certain point. Basically, the VA doctors after the war really botched his fucking treatment. They fucked him up real fucking bad, and he's hated doctors ever since, and his brother took him out to the woods because he knew he could no longer uh, have the company of normal society. So they just have been out there, and then he just so happens to run across a group of doctors, and it's time for my fucking revenge. But what really nails this whole thing home is the fact that Mitzi comes back into the picture, and good God, what a reintroduction to Mitzi's character, because to bait Hal Holbrook out of this cabin that he has found, and the fact that he has killed this dude's brother, he sets Mitzi on fire, alive, and that was a scene that was censored out of The Creeper, it was censored out of, I mean, I think for the longest time, the only way you could find the uncut version of this was on a German DVD, because the movie, I think, is right at two hours or might just be right over a two hour running time. And the, uh, the American, uh, VHS release was like an hour and 40 minutes. So they had to cut a lot of shit. Uh, not so much violence. Uh, there's a couple of violent scenes that were cut out of the, uh, the VHS version, but mostly the big scene that was cut out was Mitzi getting set on fucking fire. Cause it is goddamn heart wrenching and terrifying because you hear his screams, um, it's very prolonged, it's very messy, and it's very intense. Um, and Hal Holbrook ultimately pulls one out. Probably one of my favorite shots, last, uh, last shots in a movie, is uh, Hal Holbrook making it back to some sort of civilization. And it's just, you know, it's just an empty road. There's no one on that road uh, going north or going south, but he makes it to the road, knows he has succeeded in some way, and just sits cross-legged, right in the middle of the road and it just slowly pulls out while the fucking end credits roll. Uh, it's got just an amazing last shot in the film because you know, he's done something. He did what he set out to do. And he did in fact have some form of survival. Even if he ends up on this road dead, who cares? He did what he set out to do. It reminds me a little bit of that transition at the end of dust devil, where she just sits down and time and space all change and become one and different things. It doesn't really matter who you're going to be anymore. Like, that's what I meant so much with you have not a nihilistic feeling, but it's almost hopeless. Like, whomever he was is is dead. He died with all of his friends. No one really survived that trip and came back from what they... If anyone had even made it from the beginning of that, they all had changed so much, and they their friendships are dead. Their entities are all completely gone. I mean, I guess you could translate it to something like an absolute complete ego death, that he's not so much given up, but he's made it, but at what cost? So, I mean, there is, I guess, uh, a, a tales to the, the whole idea of surviving, because you can survive for whatever reasons, but it can completely destroy you. It can completely well, strip away whatever. It's kind of like um, the uh, tagline for Texas Chainsaw Massacre, um, who will survive and what will be left of him. That doesn't technically mean like what limbs are going to be left is what's going to be left of them mentally as well as physically and that's kind of where this movie ends up what will be left of Hal Holbrook because he's a shattered man by the end of this but he is still breathing 
He's at least got that going for him. Which is a total opposition from Hunter's Blood, because you've got that wink and a nod. Well, I guess they're all going to die anyhow ending. And yeah, I guess you could get philosophical with that. You are. We all will. Everyone will die. But that's definitely not the intention that fucking movie was taking its ending into, where Rituals is a bit more philosophical in the nature of, well, he's pretty much crushed. I mean... Everyone he's known to have as friends his entire life turned out to all be spineless bastards that didn't really particularly care for him in the first place, and now I guess you get to go home where you have TV and, I don't know, it's the 70s, so you still had the mail, you still had that. You get to go back into the ER and deal with horrifying depression of your job for the rest of your life as well. Kudos, Hal Holbrook. (laughs) But that, too, is part of the direction of his character. That's something that at the beginning of the movie uh, that stayed with him throughout the whole awful experience is no matter what, he cared about that oath. I mean, the one thing as a doctor that matters more to him is the Hippocratic Oath, and he truly practiced that. Even in the essence of his friends dying, he wouldn't let go of that. He wouldn't let go of even the ritual of, we hence the title, we have to take care of this. We we can't. We just don't leave them. We are not savages. We are not going to do this. And he has morals and that he upholds throughout the entire movie. But it's again at what cost? You know, he completely broke down. But Mitzi's lack of morals causes him to break down. They all degrade upon themselves into really terrific character studies. And it, it again just makes a great inversion from watching something like Hunter's Blood because you get to the end of the movie and you're just mad. Like, are you serious? Joey Travolta lives. You fucking let him live? I mean, this is ridiculous, and I don't ever want Clue Gulliger to die in a movie or real life. His character probably should have died for some emotional response, anything. there That's the, the problem, and that's the key right there. There is no emotional response, and it's not like you always need that. But something would have been nice. Anything would have been nice. You had really generic humor, and for the most part... Uh, faceless characters that all themselves were somewhat generic, but I still find just an odd enjoyment with Hunter's Blood on that level. It's it's a different piece of exploitation. It's a different kind of movie because what you ha- have with Hunter's Blood is you have definite antagonist and you have something to overcome as far as defeating these antagonists. And in Rituals, the antagonists are almost like second build. They're almost unnecessary. You could have almost the exact same movie without them at all. Because you could have them just getting lost in the woods and having almost the same outcome as you did. You don't have Mitzi burned to death while he's still breathing, or like still alive and shit, but um, you do have like these characters breaking down, the relationship breaking down, the realizing that somewhat they've outgrown each other and they've just been going through the ritual of their friendship, the ritual of uh, life in general. So I think just like Rituals works on so many different levels of what it is to be alive in the world and how we deal with the uh, adversity that we face in the world. And it's not just such a kind of a generic plot of fucking bad men kill bad men who want to kill us. This is so much more about what you're made of and the gumption that gets you through every day and how you do ultimately survive towards the end. I think survival and the idea of life itself is just a series of rituals. I mean, down to a repetitive notion, just bringing up something like the Catholic Church. When you walk into a church, you're supposed to bless yourself with holy water, and then before you sit down, you have to kneel at your pew or before the statue of the Mother Mary. Some places encourage you to go up to a statue and kiss it. And throughout the service, you have to shake hands with people, and you have to stand up, and you have to sit down. All of it is just as ritualistic as when you wake up, you brush your teeth, you take a piss, you make something to eat, you make tea, you make coffee, you have a cigarette, you smoke a bowl. You get your daily dose of heroin ready to shoot directly into your cock. Everyone has some ritual in some way or another, which is... At its core, survival and surviving. If you don't adhere to it, you don't really survive. And even if your uh, ritual is complete self-destruction and uh, going back to shooting heroin into your cock, not surviving, the opposite, destroying yourself, it's still a fucking ritual. And what breaks all of these characters down is the lack of them being able to actually complete any of these rituals, down to them losing their shoes, down to them not being able to... Uh, one character just fucking loses it because they can't drink and they just fall apart because they're, they're running out of booze. So they decide that they just have to drink all the booze. Conveniently, they're the one that gets a leg injury. So they are drunk when it happens, which I'm sure definitely didn't make them go into shock faster. But I'm not a doctor. I just play <laughs> one on TV. 
Well, as you bring up rituals, I mean, as the pandemic has shown us, like those rituals a lot of the time is what keeps people going because once those rituals get broken, people lose their fucking shit. And I personally don't understand like how you lose your shit that easily on almost nothing. Hey, don't leave your house so much. Fuck you. I do what I want. I got to complete my ritual. Well, you're going to die. I would rather complete my ritual than live. Well, that's fucking psychotic. So, well, I mean, it's the same thing with something like, as you were saying, the Catholic Church. During the pandemic, hey, we need to close down churches because this thing spreads with a lot of people around in a small room. Maybe don't get together in large groups in small rooms and, like, you know, breathe and sing on each other's faces. No, the mo- more important thing is that we do these things to show our reverence to God. So you're saying this ritual of going to church is more important than your own health. Cause that's what you've ultimately said. That's what you just said. It's more important than I be uh, than not me living is me worshiping in a house. Even though I can worship at home, I can read the Bible at home. All I need to go to church for is to shake other people's hands and pretend like we're friends. I don't mean this statement as all Christians, but for the most part, People that are incessant on that certain ritual, I have to have my communion, I have to shake hands with the person, I have to talk to the priest. These are the same people that feel they're pieces of shit and bad if they don't do it, that they have to adhere to this. And that's the alarming and almost psychotic thing. These are the people that need, I have to go to confession because all those awful things, cheating on my wife, calling my neighbor the N-word, whatever, just just throwing awful things down the roll. I can go ask for forgiveness for it, but if you stop me from doing that, then there's not going to go to heaven. These are people that use an arbitrary list and rules to defend why they do things and then think that there's some dogmatic way for them by eating a cookie to be completely forgiven by it and be absolved for just being a piece of shit. So they have an incessant need and and, and I have to do the ritual because if I don't do the ritual, I'm a piece of shit and Jesus doesn't love me and he died for all these wrong reasons. Why don't you just not be a piece of shit and then that format of the ritual you don't have to go say 50 Hail Marys. You don't have to eat the little Jesus cookie. You don't have to do any of that if you're just not a douchebag. But that part of the, the equation never really comes into play. You know, people don't ever sit down and think, well, God, if I didn't cheat on my wife all the time, I guess I wouldn't have to go and ask for forgiveness and waste three fucking hours on a Sunday because there isn't really any jurisdiction. I mean, if you want Christ's love, then shouldn't you just be able to have it? I mean, the, the biblical idea of hell... That's literally what it says. It's literally what it says in the goddamn book. It's all you gotta do is accept it, and you have it. So what the fuck is all this other posturing bullshit you're so obsessed with? The literal idea of hell isn't Dante Alighieri. It's being away from Christ's love. It's not not going to church. That doesn't mean you're in hell. And I mean, this is a... We've gotten into a a whole thing on rituals going into rituals, and I'm not trying to just cycle out the Christians, but I think it's something that more people— It's something we understand because it was something we were raised in. That's why it gets picked on more, because I understand it. Uh, I could say the same thing about Judaism. I could say the same thing about Islam, but I wasn't raised in those religions, so I can't speak to those religions as much as I can to this one, because this is what we were raised in. So, of course, we're going to pick it apart more. Yeah, it's not so much a, an attempt to constantly discredit or attack or disclaim Christianity because I have no problem with it and I have no problem with believing in anything that you want to believe in. But when you use that concept as, a, as an absolute crutch to just be a dick, that you have to follow these set rules that appear in your book, they are good rules. I'll give you that. I'll fucking give it to you, the Ten Commandments. Some of them are good rules. Don't kill your neighbor. Great one. I love that. Work with that. Don't steal shit. Eh, I mean, if you're hungry, fuck the man. Steal from Walmart. Just seriously, right now, ring everything up as fruit. It doesn't matter. Who cares? But there's a whole concept to you having to follow these rules to make you a good person instead of just being a good person, and that's what troubles me, and that's what troubles me even with the idea of the ritual of being able to just go and say, you're absolved. You know, like when Damien dies at the end of The Exorcist, the priest just absolves him. You know, Father Dyer, everything's okay. Every bad thing you've done, that's that belief that you're completely forgiven for child molestation and murder and rape and pillaging. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm trying to give an example of just awful things, but you can't live your life just behind the idea of I can be a dildo and just be absolved or do a couple Hail Marys and it's okay. That's not even how the fucking idea of the religion is supposed to work, but that's where people are upset about it. That's where you've got this angry stance of, I have to be able to go to church, though. 
You, what are you telling me that I can't go to church? I have my ritual that is incredibly important because it literally behooves me because if I don't get to do this, then I, what? What's going to stop me from raping and murdering? And that's where I, I, where I feel these people are coming from. This is when I read these rants and I see people just stark raving mad over, I, I just can't go to my goddamn megachurch. I can't do this. I can't be absolved. Why can't you just be a good person and follow Christ's love at home? Uh, did you read the book? Fuck, did you even watch the Mel Gibson movie? I mean, God, Jesus, fuck. Uh, read the book. Just read, read the book. It's not even that long. Dune's longer. It's harder to read, too. <laughs> fuck. At least the Bible is suspiciously in English now. Dune, not so much. Um, but, yeah, I don't know. We got off on a weird tangent, but that's, I mean, generally what rituals is about. It's uh, It's about... When to keep rituals, when to throw them away, because more importantly, it's you getting to the fucking road. It's essentially a remake of The thing. Gambler. You know, you if you've seen Kenny Rogers' The Gambler, you've seen rituals. You got to know when to hold them and know when to fold them. I don't know about that. I don't know. <laughs> That's an odd metaphor to throw in there, but sure, why not? Definitely the same movie, same writer, same thing. Yeah, so this is a more thought-provoking double feature, and I think this goes back to when we did things like uh, Bug in the Conversation, that there are a lot of dualities, that one of these movies is really, really cheap and just... I hate just saying it's an exploitation movie, because there are things like Cannibal Holocaust that are just exploitation movies, but they have so much more value. I don't think that there's really, at its core, any deeper value to Hunter's Blood than... Some Yankees go out into the woods and rednecks fuck them up and they fuck them up and, and you know, dueling banjos. It, at its core, is all the exploitation. Well, the ritual and, uh, of Hunter's Blood is to separate you from your $5. That's the ritual that one's following. <laughs> I mean, that's that's generally what it is. It's just, it's an hour and a half to sit, watch, enjoy, go home, don't think about it, which is fine. I am perfectly fine with that. But sometimes you can get a similar plotted film that can expand your horizons like rituals that can span uh, discourse and thought and talk. And, but they're basically the same fucking plot. They're just yep. handled in different ways. I mean, down to the same characters and most of them doing the same thing. They're not all doctors and hunters blood, but the similarities are definitely there. And going back and forth between the two, especially if you sit down and judge them as a double feature, I think they're really, complement each other i think being able to launch rituals after hunter's blood will give you a little bit more appreciation for it and really what it tackles is all the explicit aspects of deliverance i mean it, it's all which is very short when you sit down and go back and rewatch deliverance there's a lot more imposed violence and more woe than anything else it has much more similarities to the tension of something like rituals than more exploitation and it's odd that when it comes to redneck exploitation or john borman knockoff genre that they always focus on that and i mean really you've got the horrific sequence with ned Beatty, and then you've got uh, when turt ferguson breaks his leg that's there's that and then they're going down the white water for what seems like nine hours as long as the goddamn wedding scene the deer hunter well, so much just, of ugh. What happens with these type of films, these like red exploitation or being lost in the woods movies? Oh, some of them can be man versus man. Some of them can be man versus nature. And sometimes they can be man versus himself. And rituals is man versus himself while hunter's blood is man versus man. And even, um, say deliverance that's a little bit more of man versus himself also but it, deliverance is a little bit more of all these different things it's man versus himself man versus nature as well as man versus other man well, what makes deliverance i think especially unique is you've got the incredible macho character who is disabled and then throughout the the movie everyone else has to deal with each other they all actually abandon their rituals and realize what they have to do to survive and even after something as devastating as Ned Beatty being raped, he still realizes, you know, he's not a Mitzi. No one in that movie, I think maybe Burt Reynolds, if anyone, would be similar to that character because he knew how to do everything and was such a tough guy, and he's the first one to fucking go. To quote the Dead Kennedys, you're the first to go unless you think. A Dead Kennedys quote right at the end, huh? There's always room for Jello. <laughs> <laughs> ah, I don't know. Does that sum it up, or we got more? We got more to talk about. You want to talk about Final Terror or the Zero Boys? Oh, man. Zero Boys is trash, but it's okay. I enjoy that trash. 
It's one of the only movies about paintball that you, you don't think that's going to be a, a great topic, but apparently paintball was really popular in the 80s to the extent that Ooh, Ronald about Reagan... about 1987, it got real huge. Uh, the, the president, Ronald Reagan, was a big fan of it. It blew up for years, and then somewhat like the BMX and skateboard genre of movies just went away, but we will always have Zero Boys. As, and I, would you even call that really horror? I, would, I, mean, See, I wouldn't call it Zero Boys horror. I would say it's it's another, you can call it red exploitation, because ultimately what the plot is is a bunch of a paintball team trapped in the woods with a bunch of rednecks that they have actual, like they also have actual guns and they just go to war with these fucking backwoods morons. That's basically the entire plot. And it's, a, would say, a lot more exploitive than any of these movies put together because it focuses a lot more on just the violent aspects of it, whereas the Final, te- uh, final Terror is... Um, that's a lot of man versus nature, but also man versus weird fucking swamp witch. I think what I like the most about that movie is it's stark visuals. Again, it's something like Rituals. It's filmed uh, in nature. It's filmed in California. It's very beautiful. Redwood Forest. It, it takes advantage of its locations more than anything else, but it does have a pretty interesting spectrum of characters. You've got a great red herring with Joey Pants with his first nose early Joey pants nose. Cause that's, but definitely... is he a red herring though? Cause he's kind of a red herring, but he's kind of tied in intricately to the actual. Yeah. There's what's actually going more on. layer and meat to this than there is that than meets the eye. So, I mean, this is something we can always come back to, but still I, I ended up watching. It's got this. a crazy cast though. Like Daryl Hannah, Rachel Ward, the guy that played, what's it? Louis Thoreau, the guy who played perfect yeah. Tommy and Buckaroo Banzai and Adrian Zamed from Greece too. Who doesn't love Zamed? There's just some horrifying sequences. One of my favorites is when they're passing on the canoes and just the, the thing stands up on the rock. You never noticed where the killer is. It, it, it really plays against your emotions, I guess. Not really. It doesn't play well, against your like emotions. That's like a completely weirdly lost uh, backwoods slasher film because more than anything, it is a slasher film than any of these other films because it is a lone fucking killer with scenes of you know murder and violence in it without it. It's not just like hunters with guns and shit no it's a slasher with fucking knives and the whole rip roar so it's a little bit more of a uh, slasher type film also the prey which is complete dog shit uh that's a terrible backwood slasher film but i enjoy it for a guy tells a joke to a deer for five solid minutes just before dawn is another great example uh, i do enjoy just for uh, just before dawn uh, jeff lieberman um that's a George Kennedy picture, goddammit. Yeah, one of the most useless park rangers in the world just before dawn has, I think, one of the coolest sequences in a horror movie where somebody's at the top of a tree, they cut the tree down, and you follow them the entire fucking ride, years before GoPros, and I don't know if it's the actress, I highly doubt it, but you can see whomever it is smacks down pretty hard, and then they die. It's great. We're going back with more rednecks in the woods slashers. I think we got a whole like show here at oh yeah. yeah we got it does have my favorite final girl ending though of any slasher film uh just the uh the throat fisting to kill the uh the villain is pretty goddamn fucking amazing it's and one of my favorites greg henry cries that's the greg henry part. breaks down like a bitch <laughs> just weeping and then you've, the movie starts to fade to black and they focus on him crying it's absolutely amazing i always like to think it's because that stupid fucking receptionist forgot his mr pibb that's his favorite type of Coke, <laughs> Mr. Pibb. All right. I guess we need to wrap this episode up. I think the ashtray is full and the bottle is empty. As always, we will be back next week, unless the world ends. Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. On the next episode of Death by DVD... Contemporary Texas Ranger Alexander Nash's partner, Chance Rudolph, is killed during a bank robbery in Fort Worth. Nash's new partner, Ranger Hollywood Hank, has a history with one of the suspects in the robbery. Trying to solve the case, Nash discovers that the robbery could have been a test for a much bigger goal, simultaneously robbing four banks lying next to each other. After a bomb explodes in a bank across town which has just gotten in a valuable shipment, everyone runs to that bank. 
When the actual robbery starts at the other four banks, it falls to Hank and Nash in an effort to catch the robbers and their leader, former CIA agent Mike Hunt, played by Marshall T. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning. And now our national anthem. I'm Linnea. And I like Death by DVD. It's a statement. Ich nicht auf Feierabend.